Hey, welcome to Lakeview Sermon of the Week. We're so grateful to have you here, and we hope you enjoyed today's message. Hug somebody's neck, tell them you love them. Somebody might need a hug today. Anthony, you look like you need a hug, man. Love you, buddy. Deeper stirring. Mm, like that shirt, restored for life. Yeah. <laughs> that beats restored till next Wednesday, doesn't it? We're claiming it. <laughs> I'm restored till Sunday, then I get re restored. Hey, but it's like that because we're really going from glory to glory, and God has. Uh, his timeline going forward, and it doesn't always line up with our timeline, but we're trusting that he's going to finish the good work that he started, and so we're partnering with him, we're cooperating with him in everything that he's doing in the earth and, and what he's doing in our lives, and, and, uh, and so just, just trust his plan. He's got, he's got good things ahead. Um, we're going to be looking at John chapter 5. Um, so yeah, John chapter 5, this is Really a unique story in a lot of different ways. Uh, the book of John has kind of become my favorite book, just to be honest. Um, it's just the way it's seemed together. It's just, oh my goodness, so rich. It's so beautiful. And John is really capturing a lot of things. Now, John's gospel is so much different than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Or Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels is what they call them because those are pretty much similar uh, in form and fashion, do have some, some differences, but John is just radically different. It's not really uh, concerned with a timeline or a chronology like the other ones seem to be in a little more of an order. Um, so the book of John has, has taken a lot of scrutiny uh, from scholars saying that this was probably written by somebody who put John's name on there that John probably didn't write the book due to the uh, inconsistencies found within the scriptures here um, and some of his stories and some of the history and the archaeology wasn't lining up. Uh, but what's really cool is every once in a while, archaeology finds something that actually vindicates the Bible and vindicates the Gospels. And so in this story, we find that there is the pool of Siloam um, is in John chapter 9, and it mirrors John chapter 5, where he's at a different pool, a pool called Bethesda. Now, there's different names for this uh, pool, but it's really minutiae that we're not going to get into. Uh, but these two stories, so if you read chapter 5, do this in your own time because we don't have time. Read chapter 5, then read chapter 9. Because the author, John, meant for these to kind of be mirrors of each other, of uh, kind of as opposites. So they're, they're linked. They're, there's comparisons in each one of kind of what happens. Um, John chapter 5 is kind of, in a sense, what you shouldn't do um, after an encounter with the Lord. It's kind of like what the Jewish understanding would have been if you were not a follower of Jesus or you didn't believe in Jesus. John chapter 9 is actually exactly what you should do 
when you have an encounter with Jesus. And so the author's kind of making a shift here of two miracles side by side, but two different responses that happen within, uh, within the person that receives the miracle's life. And so that's just a side note for your personal study. Read chapter John chapter 5, read John chapter 9. And these two pools are, are, are meant to be kind of like mirrors of each other in a sense and to kind of point us in a, in a different kind of direction. So if you want to do your own personal study, so that's kind of what's going on here. Um, in John chapter 5, like I was saying, there's, uh, you know, they couldn't find any pool that represented or even looked like this pool of Bethesda. And so uh, some people started searching and doing some excavation there uh, in that area in like the 1900s. And then they find this pool exactly the way John describes it in his gospel. So sometimes you have to wait a long time to be vindicated truth, okay? So, um, so this actually has some archaeological evidence that's exactly the way John described it when John had received criticism when they said, oh, somebody else wrote this way later because we can't find anything, any pool that looks like this. And so this is a unique story in the sense that um, it's factually accurate even down to the archaeology of how John describes it. Why do I say that? Is not because it's really great importance of, to the text that we're going to get into, but it's just to let you know that the Bible is true, okay? The Bible is, is factual. It has those kind of things in there, um, and there's always a deeper spiritual meaning that God is trying to accomplish, but, but in here, there's the, this place actually exists. Now, what was going on at this place, um, this was actually a pagan pool uh, that was here uh, in this area in, in Jerusalem. That this pool was originally dedicated to a god called, called Asclepius, okay? Have you ever seen the snake wrapped around a rod in medical things? Okay, that was the god of Asclepius. So basically what happened was in Greek mythology, Apollo um, saw a king's daughter that was a human. And so the god Apollo had relations with this king's daughter named Coronis and they created Asclepius. And Asclepius was granted with great gifts of healing. So that was his gifting. So Zeus sees that he's got this great gift of healing, and he's worried that he would heal Zeus's enemies. So Zeus rains down a lightning bolt and kills Asclepius. And so that's kind of how he becomes this kind of mythological figure of a healer. So this pool was dedicated uh, as a pagan shrine where people would come and try to be healed, okay? So Jesus isn't at a place where there'd be ritualistic cleansings and different things. He shows up on the scene of a pagan shrine. How many of you know Jesus will show up anywhere he needs to show up? And so how he does this miracle is a lot different than how he does in John chapter 9. And, and that's why they're meant to be. Um, he doesn't even mess with this, the water in this story. <laughs> he's like, it's like the pool's there, but he's like bypasses the pool. And does the work to basically say, these pagan entities that you're looking to, they have nothing on what I can do in your life and in your heart, okay? So the story goes with this is that apparently the water would be stirred in some kind of way, whether it be an angel's 
comes down and would stir the waters. And if they saw stirring in the water, the first one that got in gets healed. Okay? So all these people are gathered around these pools and they're waiting for something to stir the water so that they might get in and be the first one in to receive some kind of touch. And so that's kind of the backdrop of, of what's going on here. Um, so when we're looking at miracles in the Bible, um, miracles, what are miracles called in the scriptures? Hey, there you go, say it. Signs and wonders, right? So we kind of got this miracle kind of mentality, and that's okay. That's okay to describe a supernatural occurrence, but we really, the biblical language is signs and wonders. What does a sign do? A sign points to something greater, right? What does a wonder do? It opens your expanse for what you thought was possible and brings you into a greater reality of what things could be. Do you see what I'm saying? So whenever we're talking about the miraculous, God doesn't do miracles just as ends in and, uh, in and of themselves. Okay? Um, we can actually worship miracles and not worship Jesus. I'm just saying. That the miracles, we need to lose that language and get biblical language and call it signs and wonders. Because what does a sign do? I don't try to go to Denver, Colorado, and then the first time I see a sign that says Denver, and I stop at the sign and go, ah, green. No, it lets me know I've got to keep going to a further reality to actually enter into the thing that I'm called to enter into, right? So anytime miracles, and God uses miracles, man, who wants to see more miracles and who wants to see God show out in the earth, Right? But that's all got to be at the end to bring us deeper into devotion for Jesus. And I submit to you, I've seen miracles happen where people get up and quit serving God. And you're like, you prayed and prayed for this to happen. It happened and then you left. Right? So the signs and wonders language puts us in perspective of what is this pointing to? This is pointing to Jesus and deeper devotion to him and his kingdom and what he's bringing to earth in the age to come, okay? So whenever these signs and wonders happen, remember, these signs are pointing to a greater reality, right? So when we read the scriptures and we see God open the eyes of the blind, what is that an image of a greater reality? The image is that people are spiritually blind and they need to get a glimpse of Jesus. That if you stayed blind but got a glimpse of Jesus and followed him with all your heart, would that not be better than your eyes being opened up? Right? Right? And so Jesus is always the issue. So while you're praying for miracles, man, pray for those miracles. Believe for miracles. I'm going to believe with you. But in the process, remember that it's about going deeper in your devotion to Jesus than it is about getting what you're trying to pray for. It's all about him. And so these are signs that put us on a pathway that lead us to greater devotion to Jesus. If you're experiencing miracles in your life, but you're not becoming a deeper and more devoted follower of Jesus, I'm going to say to you that that is not a good thing. And it probably is demonic at that point. Because the miracles of Jesus are to bring us into deeper devotion to Jesus. 
They're not to be worshiped and celebrated in and of themselves as if they're ends. They're not ends. They're signs. They're wonders. Why? Signs to point us to further look at him, to further chase him, to further go after him. And so whenever we read about what's going on here in the scriptures, it's all about to take the blinders off and to say, the king has come. I got to lay all my devotion and all myself at his feet and become his and his alone. That's why miracles happen. It lets us know the kingdom of God has broken in and I must bow a knee to King Jesus and I must lay everything at his feet and follow him with all that's within me. Okay? And so that's what's happening here. So we'll just dive right in. John chapter 5 verse 1. After this, it was a Jewish feast, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So John is kind of like a pinball. Jesus is up in Galilee, which is north, but the elevation south in Jerusalem is actually higher. So when it says that he's going up to Jerusalem, he's actually going down. But the elevation's higher, so he's actually going up. Does that make sense? So he's going south, but he's going up. It's crazy, okay? So he's reading, so chapter 1, he gets baptized by John the Baptist, so he goes down. Chapter 2, wedding in Cana, water into wine, he's going up. Chapter 3, he goes back down to Nicodemus and, and has this dialogue with him. Chapter 4, he goes back up. Chapter 5, he's going back down. So to be a good Jew in this day was to, to interface with the temple. It was like to come on a holy day and to come and to be a part of everything that was going on. So Jesus was always on the move in a sense to where he's interfacing in Galilee, which is kind of his headquarters, his base. And then he's coming south to interface with the temple and, and the priests and the different things that's going on. So he's going up but he's actually going south, which is down. Verse 2, and there was, in, and the, now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool called Bethesda, which has five covered walkways. Now, these pools were really large. They were, it was a trapezoid shape, but it was like the size of a football field, if you could picture that as a pool. And so there was two twin pools surrounded by four porches, and uh, there was one porch uh, that separated the middle, separating two pools, and it was just this big, ornate thing. So there was like covered walkways, all these pools, it was in a trapezoid shape, and it was basically as big as a football field. So this was been like, it would have been hard to probably show up at this and not be a little bit intimidated maybe, or a little bit feeling like you were small at this place. It wasn't like this little pool, uh, kiddie pool type thing, okay? This was a, a big pool that is a pagan shrine that people are gathering around. Verse 3, And a great number of sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed people were lying in the walkways. So here they are in this kind of pagan shrine area in verse 5 there's a certain man pointed out now a man verse 5 was there who had been disabled for 38 years so Bethesda what that means it means house of mercy so all these people are gathering at the house of mercy but this one person's been disabled for 38 years. Now, when the Bible puts a number in there specifically, there's always a reason, okay? It's to point us to something. It's to bring us into some kind of greater reality. Now, the life expectancy 
in Jerusalem in the first century was lower than 38. The average life expectancy, you didn't live to 38. So what the author John is trying to put us in perspective here is this guy's been sick longer than most people live. 38, it's also really close to 40. So there's like this other kind of 40 wilderness journey here kind of idea that the author could be laying out as well. So this man has been sick longer than most people live. So this is a unique situation that's happening here in the text. And the author's highlighting it. How many of you ever been going through something that feels like forever? Have you ever carried something that it feels like forever? Okay. So at this point, this guy's got to be wondering, Lord, why are you even keeping me alive? Why am I even here to be in this position, to be sick longer than most people even live? That there's something going on here that is, um, the author's up to something. He's trying to show us something here, verse 6. And when Jesus saw him lying there, and when he realized that the man had been disabled a long time already, he said to him, do you want to become well? Now, this seems to be like a no-brainer, right? But it's really not. Because how many of you have seen people sick? In their sin. How many of you have seen people sick in addiction? How many of you have ever seen somebody in a bad spot? And you would think, surely they want to get well. And you ask the question, do you want to get well? <laughs> I got this. I love how Jesus invites this man's will and volition into the equation. He doesn't go past the will of this man. He asks the, what would seem to be a no-brainer question. Why? Because God wants us involved in the process of our own healing. I'm just telling you. And this is what the Lord was doing here in this moment. As he sees this man, 38 years in a really rough place, sees him and says, do you want to get well? Because this invites another question. Um, what maybe are you willing to do to get well? Because how many of you know, even when you want to get well, sometimes the process to get well seems so impossible that it seems greater than even the ability to get well and be touched. So Jesus asked this open-ended question to invite him in. And this is what it says, verse 7, the sick, the sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While I'm trying to get into the water, someone else goes down there before me. So this is what happens, I think, a lot of times. Jesus says to him, do you want to become well? Does he answer the question? And I think a lot of times God asks us questions and we give God, instead of answering his question, 
We give him a reason why his question isn't valid. <laughs> Do you want to become well? Sir, nobody can put me in the water. See, I think what happens to us many times is we put ourselves in a position to where we think we've got to have the answer instead of letting God just tell us what the answer is, right? And so this is what's happening here in this dialogue. Do you want to be made well? Sir, I can't be in the water. He's thinking that his surroundings are the reason why he can't get healed. He's thinking because his location, that's why he can't get the touch that he needs. So Jesus' question opens up his thinking to show he's really in a different kind of place because he's put his faith in this kind of pagan pool, this pagan shrine, and all his eggs are in the basket of hopefully when the water gets stirred, no one's looking, and I can somehow crawl down there and get in there first. But do you notice what he says? I've got nobody to put me in. So Jesus changes his whole paradigm of what he's thinking healing really is. He's revealing what his faith is actually in. And a lot of times God's questions are to get us to the right answer. That's why God always answers a question with a question. Have you noticed that? Why? Because he's trying to get you to the right conclusions. He's trying to bring you in on the process of who he is. Now, why would he do that? I think he wants to create faith in your heart. God could reach down right now and do whatever he wanted and snap his finger. But you'd be worse for it. Unless you were aware of the process. You were aware of who he was. And you were brought into the reality of what God was trying to do in your heart and in your life. So his question is exposing what his faith is really in. When probably, do you want to be well? It would have been nice if he had just said, yeah. <laughs> but don't we always make things more complicated than what they are? It's what we do. Do you want to be well? Sir, nobody can put me in the water. And then the angel stirs it and nobody's there and I can't get in. And then just somebody goes in, somebody gets touched and I can't ever get touched. Do you want to get well? <laughs> See, he has his eyes more on the obstacle than he does on the power of the one who's right in front of him that's engaging him. And how cool is it, this guy that would seem the low man on the totem pole that's in this 38-year state, and of all the people that's laying out there on that pool, the size of a football field, he finds the one that's been sick for 38 years. It's like... My spiritual father always said it was like this. He said, the anointing's like water. It always flows to the lowest point. So if you're at the lowest point, you're in a really good place. It's like Jesus, the anointed one, is like, where's the lowest point in here? Because I'm water, and I've always got to go to where the lowest point is. 
So he finds it. Man that's been sick. 38 years. Who's trying to get in the water. But seems to always have someone jump in front of him. You ever felt cut in line all the time? How about 38 years of getting cut? Where you're like, man, I was right there. Man, I was so close. And my pinky toe was right there and this. And so there's like this superstitious thing that he's waiting on when Jesus is there the whole time. And I think some of what we call faith is actually superstition. Did you ever have that? In, in school, I played, played ball. So you'd have a socks you didn't wash if you won, or rabbit's foot. I had one friend, he would wear his basketball shorts backwards because we, he did good one time. He never did good again, but he continued to wear them backwards. So his panther was going that way, and ours was going that way. And, you know, the fit of shorts anyway, so it was like obviously off. But I think that's how we do God, right? Like, oh, I did this, this, and this this week, so must be something good coming down the pike for me. God must love me a little bit extra because I prayed really hard this week. And it's like, here's the deal. God's love all by himself. That your obedience is just a response to his goodness anyway. And it's not about some superstitious formula that you've got to follow where the angel can stir the water up really quick and then you can jump in and, oh, I found it. It's like, no, God's everywhere at all times. He's as close as the mention of your name, of his name. He's not some kind of superstitious genie guy to where you've got to formulize everything and figure out everything and, be, and have everything just right. And if it's not just right, he's, a, he's not like that. It's a relationship. It's a relationship. So what is Jesus trying to do? He's trying to pull this guy out of superstition. And into a relationship. He's trying to get him to pull out of trying to figure out everything around him. And how can I get there when this is right in the right moment? Uh, you ever felt like that? You ever look back at your life and said, man, if I'd have turned left there, what would have happened? Instead of right. If I'd have did this instead of that. And if I'd have... And we work ourselves up and we get into despair and think, well, I guess there's no destiny left because I've made all these bad decisions or I made the wrong decisions here, there, and everywhere. And Jesus is just blowing all that up. And he's saying, I'm still here. I didn't go anywhere. Get out of your head. Get out of your mind. Get out of working out every possible scenario of every possible way. And, and you know what that is? That's called fear. called, I'm filled with so much fear, I've got to control everything around me. So I'm going to think through every possible scenario instead of just trusting God in each and every step. So God is blowing up 
this guy's superstitious idea of who he is. That this man is in a, a really rough state. And I also find it odd that no one cares enough for him to sit with him and get him to the water when it's stirred. So not only is he in a hopeless state, he's alone. (laughs) And what happens is when we get in hopeless states, we start blaming other people instead of taking ownership and engaging God who's right in front of us. So he's like, do you want to be well? Well, I got nobody to put me in. And somebody always cuts me. Victim mentality. <laughs> and Jesus is like, what? Well, I'm here. <laughs> I'm here in whom all things are possible. So he's peeling the layers of this thing off. And trying to get this guy to the heart of really what's actually going on. So look what Jesus says. Jesus says to him, and here there's emphasis, that I think Jesus is probably a little bit put off, right? Because Jesus is the king of the universe. (laughs) What can Jesus not do? And when he says, do you want to be made well? He can't muster a yes. He musters an excuse, a statement that would blame others and blame his status or whatever it would be. And Jesus says to him emphatically, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. Does Jesus say, hey, I'm going to stir the water. I'm the angel of the Lord. And I'm going to stir the water. And as soon as I stir the water, jump in. He doesn't listen to this guy's understanding of what's going to actually bring him into fullness or wholeness. He bypasses the pool altogether and just says, stand up, take up your mat, and walk. Now, here's the issue with this statement. Jesus is doing this on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath, there was all kinds of rules. You couldn't carry anything on the Sabbath. That was considered work. And the stricter the Jew you were, the more stricter you became about that sentiment and that statement. So you didn't carry firewood on the Sabbath. You didn't do anything. So Jesus, on the Sabbath, heals a man that's been sick for 38 years. So Jesus does a work. And guess what he tells the man to do? Do some work. (laughs) Mr. Excuse, take up your mat and walk. In other words, take responsibility for your situation, grab it and go. So Jesus gets in trouble on the Sabbath, as we will read about. Well, I guess we better just go ahead and read it. And Jesus said, stand up, pick up your mat and walk. And immediately the man was healed. He picked up his mat and started walking. Now that day was a Sabbath. So oddly enough, this man's at the pool, which is called the house of mercy. Jesus says, yeah, that pool thing, not important. I'm the house of mercy. (laughs) I'm the meeting place of God. You you don't have to get into all that stuff. Just just, just engage with me. 
And this is the issue of every one of our lives. Are we willing to engage with Jesus? Are we going to stay blaming and hoping something else should have happened instead of what actually happened? And are we actually going to engage Jesus face-to-face, man-to-man? And when he says, stand up, get your mat and walk, will we keep making excuses or will we actually get up, get our mat, and go into the heart of God and go fully into him? Do you want to be made well? Stand up. Take your excuse and carry it back home. Yeah. Well, five people want to be well. Let's do it. That was rhetorical, but I really do appreciate your standing. <laughs> it's cool. Get up. He makes the pool irrelevant. He doesn't even acknowledge the pool. He acknowledges the people taking the man's focus off the empty promises and superstitions and says, hey, right here, right here, right here, 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 no, no, pull, pull, friends, pull, no, 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 me, me, right here, right, right here. And this is what Jesus is always doing. Hey, hey, oh, because we'll get, oh, man, it's this over here, oh, my gosh, and he's like, hey, 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 right here, stand up, take your mat, walk. Oh, but this over here, hey, here. Here. You didn't know it, but you could be saved by your good looks. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith. <laughs> but that's how you finish the race. Keep your eyes on Jesus, man. Quit worrying about what you ain't got and what this person did and this person. No, man, you keep your eyes on him. Keep your eyes on him and you take up that excuse that you've been laying on for way too long. Come on, somebody. I know it's Wednesday night, but I need some help. I know it's hot. It's hot too. But I'm telling you, roll up that goofy excuse, put it under your arm, and get on with the king's business. Get on with the king's business. Do you want to be made well? Stand up, roll that excuse up, put it under your arm, and take it back to the house and never get it back out ever again, and then walk with him for the rest of your life. The king is big enough to handle it. So Jesus becomes the replacement for water, and this is what he does throughout Scripture. Uh, Remember in chapter 2, where he turns water into wine. This makes everybody nervous. But he uses water pots, right? And he says to fill up these water pots. These water pots were like 20 to 30 gallon water pots. So these weren't things that you could just tote around. So these weren't like easy pitchers to turn. They were used to fill up a ceremonial washing pools where during different holidays and different Jewish things, they would cleanse themselves and do these ritualistic things. So they had a purpose. They could only be used for purification purposes. Okay? And Jesus says, no, fill them up with water. And then he turns them into wine. So he bypasses the purpose of what they were actually for. Say, you think you know your purpose, but you don't really know what Jesus is really up to and what he could be doing in your life. 
You've predetermined that this is my purpose. And Jesus says, oh, these must be ceremonial washing pitchers. No, they're wine vats. So Jesus bypasses the original purpose and uses them for something totally different. See, we put limits on God all the time. He replaces the water and turns it into wine. Now, that seems kind of odd. But what's the bigger story here? What's the sign or the wonder pointing to? Because we stop there and say, wow, that's pretty cool. But a miracle's never to say that's pretty cool. A miracle's always to say, God, what, are you, what is the bigger picture of what you're doing? See, we quit asking questions long before God really wants us to stop asking questions. We're so satisfied with things, which is, it's okay, but we never go to the next level. So here it is, water into wine, what's going on? Well, his mother pulls him aside during that miracle and says, they're out of wine. Now, in Jewish culture, this is a shame culture, right? Where if you couldn't honor your guest or you couldn't provide, shame was going to be on you. Jesus says, man, I don't have anything to do with this. The mom bypasses what Jesus says and says, do what he tells you and just walks off. Jesus is like, ah. What's Jesus doing? He's removing the shame from the groom. <laughs> He's restoring honor to the groom. What is the church called? The bride. Who, what's Jesus called? The bridegroom. So he's restoring honor to this position that men have messed up over and over and over and over. And he's saying, I'm restoring honor to it. And I'm the honorable groom that will restore a spotless and beautiful bride. I submit to you, that's more glorious than water turning to wine. And church over here arguing about wine. And Jesus is saying, that ain't even what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to restore honor to the groom. So we missed the forest for the trees. And that's where this guy was. You want to be made well? Well, I've been here 38 years and this, and this, and I ain't got nobody. That ain't the question. Do you want to be made well? Which leads me to think, Clarence, while you're texting over there, it better be somebody important. Okay. No, it's notes. Okay, I'm with you then. Which leads me to think, did he really want to be made well? Because if I'm well, I now have a new responsibility to walk this thing out. Because I can get good at letting people down and creating a bad thing so I don't get asked for anything. It's easier to be not dependable than it is to be... I'm just saying. But that God would say, why don't we just replace the water all together and you look at me as your source? That's what he tells Nicodemus. How do I enter in the kingdom of God? Chapter 3. Oh, you got to be born from water and spirit. Hmm. 
spirit in the Greek there would be pneumatos, which would be the same word as wind. Where does wind and water come from? <laughs> oh, you got to be born from up here if you want to enter. <laughs> He's like, how can I do that? the only one that's ever been born from up there him Jesus is saying if you gotta be in me that I'm more important than water that I'm more important than any source that you're drawing from and you need to stay locked in on me That we're looking for God to do a little move or a little stirring where we get, you know, feel pretty good about ourselves. And, and God's trying to do a deeper stirring. He said, yeah, I could stir those waters, but I'd rather stir your heart. Yeah, I could write my law on some tablets, but man, I'd sure rather etch it on your heart. So, ooh, no, I'll take it on the tablets, God. <laughs> So that might mean I might have to walk this thing out with you on the Sabbath. And I don't want to get in trouble. I got my neat little nice life. Don't ruin it for me, Jesus. I'm respectable. I'm well liked. No, you've been sick for a long time. And you need Jesus. Desperately. Do you need Jesus? So Jesus replaces. Where does he meet the, uh, okay, let's just keep going with this. Chapter 4, where does he meet the Samaritan woman? What does he tell her if you drink of this water? So there's a theme throughout John that's what? Water. <laughs> and then Jesus is saying, I'm that. It's all fit together in a really great picture here to get us knowing that our source can't be anything other than him. Verse 10, so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. You're not permitted to carry your mat. Well, that's encouraging. Now, notice they were nowhere to be seen when he was at his worst. <laughs> but then they show up when a healing takes place. Whoa. What you doing with that mat, pal? <clears throat> I want to say, like, what are you doing walking out here to see me while I'm carrying my mat? That leads me to believe they're following Jesus the whole time. That, how hard-hearted do you got to be to not celebrate when somebody with a 38-year infirmity is completely well in a moment? <laughs> Why are you carrying that mat? 
And that's what religion will always do. Religion will always want you to be laid down where it can exalt itself over you so that you're never empowered to follow God yourself. Religion wants you to be on. I better be careful how I word this. Religion wants you to be addicted to people and authority in a church where you can never find your own way to God. You just got to go find a man. But Jesus, he takes a guy that's been out for 38 years, get your mat and walk, powers him right in the moment. The people that should have known are like, hey, wait, you can't do that. So instead of celebrating the miracle, they're worried about what day of the week he's carrying a mat. Oh, my gosh. And it just breaks your heart, really, at the end of the day. But here was another weird thing. is Jesus didn't reveal himself. He did, this man just got up and took his mat and took off. He never engaged with him to figure out who it was. <laughs> so it's like, do you want to be made well? Well, I can't get in here. To, take up your, stand up, take up your mat and walk. Okay. <laughs> I think I would have been like, wait a second, can I get your name, sir? Oh, Yeshua. Oh, thank you. Oh, okay, yeah, I got that. Thank you, kind sir. Shake hands. and He just gets his mat and starts going. And I say, hey, wait a second. You can't carry a mat on Saturday. Oh, well, I'm just listening to this guy. What guy? Well, I don't know. Some guy back there just touched me. 38 years I've been, but now I can't. But hey, yeah. No. So you see what spiritual blindness does is it keeps us from a place of gratitude. And it keeps us from seeing Jesus. See, the miracle didn't bring him to seeing Jesus. Whereas in chapter 9, the blind guy sees him clearly. Which tells us, I wish I had time to teach both, I just don't. That chapter 9, the blind guy's got more response and cannot see better than the one that wasn't blind, that was just lame. That's what the author's trying to show. Who healed you? Oh, some guy back there. <laughs> Some guy touched me back here. I don't really know who, but the man who made me well, he just told me to pick up a mat and walk, and that's what I did. Verse 12, who is the man that said to you, pick up your mat and walk? But the man who had been healed did not know who it was. <laughs> Get this one, for Jesus had slipped out. <laughs> it's like, what's going on here? So weird. Since there was a crowd in that place. And here's what God will do. God will touch you sometimes and slip out to see if you'll pursue him. Because he'll vindicate the miracle by your pursuit of if you're actually going to go for him or not. See, it set some people free and they just go on and don't. So he slips out and says, well, no pursuit. There's nothing really done here. So he said he had slipped out since there was a crowd in that place. Verse 14. And after this, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, who found who again? <laughs> Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, look, you have become well. Don't sin anymore lest anything worse happen to you. <laughs> it's, just, it's just like, what in the world is going on here? 
So Jesus makes this man clean, and this guy goes to the temple. Now, given his status, he wouldn't have been able to go, out of the t- go into the temple because he would have been considered unclean. So now he's in a temple, but what he doesn't understand is back at the pool, he had the temple right in front of him. So Jesus goes and finds him. The temple finds him at the temple. It's like, okay, what's going on here? Don't sin unless anything worse happens to you. That Jesus didn't just do the miracle to heal his body. It's that Jesus was bringing him to a greater reality of relationship with him and the work that God was going to do to conquer sin which separates men from God and leads to death. Verse 15, the man went away and informed the Jewish leaders that Jesus was the one who made him well. So he goes and tells on Jesus. And if you look at the scripture and if you look at the the story in, in John 9 with the blind man, he does everything right. This guy does everything wrong. He basically only brings Jesus' name up to tell on him to get him in trouble, even though he's the one that touched him and healed him. That just because we get a touch from God doesn't mean we've given our devotion to him. And God would like us to get past the emotional, past, and don't get me wrong, I love the emotion. Man, I want to feel God in a place. But there's a place that goes past emotion that just says, God, I'm yours no matter if this goes up, down, sideways, whichever way it goes. I don't care. I'm yours and you're mine and I ain't going nowhere. And then there's another one that wants a touch and does the religious activities but never really gets devoted to him. And this is the two that are put side by side. Verse 16, now Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath and the Jewish leaders began persecuting him. So he told them, so I'm generally a guy that wants to diffuse something. Is there any diffusers in here? You see something going down and you interject yourself to kind of be the peacemaker. Jesus isn't that guy. (laughs) Like he goes on and says the thing that you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he said that. Like like Jesus would be making us nervous all the time. (laughs) It's like, here's the guy that says what needs to be said and we just kind of cringe and get behind him and go, oh God, I hope we're going to be okay. You ever been with that person? I had that person in my life. And whenever water was made into wine on random days before I was saved, he would say things that didn't need to be said at times when they didn't need to be said, and I cringed and got behind him and said, oh! And it's a wonder we're still alive. So Jesus takes their anger and provokes them to another level of anger. Now, why does Jesus do this? Is Jesus like making people mad? No. 
He's just trying to get to the heart of the issue. That Jesus will reveal things that so irk you. He'll put people in your life that are like sandpaper. And he'll say, God, get them out of here so that I can live holy. Or, <laughs> yeah, let's be real. It's always somebody else, right? God, get them out of here so I can be holy. Or it might sound like this. I've been at this pool for 38 years and nobody's here to put me in. I like laying on this mat where it's comfortable. And so Jesus is confronted about healing a man on Saturday. It's like, you ever thought about that? If I had Jesus right here, what questions would I ask him? He's the wealth of wisdom and all this. One of them wouldn't be why did you heal a man on Saturday? But that's the conclusions religions bring you to. It brings you to the wrong question all the time. And it negates the fact that he's a person in whom you're supposed to be in a relationship with. And it finds little things that could further divide, never bring anyone together. That's what it does. It's what religion always does. It creates holy clubs that say, we're better than you because we do it this way. And Jesus just blows the club up altogether and says, oh, you got a problem with the Saturday Sabbath? Oh, well, my father's working and uh, me and him has been working together. Up till now. <laughs> What's he saying? I'm equal with God. Amen. And I'm right in your face doing things that only he could do. But you're so blind and so self-sufficient and so prideful that you can't humble yourself enough to say, Jesus, I want to be well. I just want to be well. Well there means whole. Nothing missing, nothing broken. I want to be well. And that's the place Jesus is trying to get us all to. Just answer that question. Do you want to be well? And we have to have the courage to set aside our excuses, set aside our mat, and say, yeah, I need to be made well. I need to be made well. So Jesus really riles them up. And basically says, God is my father. Instead of that being good news, they saw that as bad news. <laughs> and Jesus aligns himself with God who says, I never sleep. I never slumber, and I'm sustaining and upholding the world and the universe by the word of my power. So I can't go to sleep 
even though you'd like me to sometimes. I've got to keep working. Because my father keeps working, I've got to keep working. And so guess what you need? You've got to do <laughs> as sons and daughters of the Most High God. You've got to keep working, man. You've got to keep working. And that doesn't mean you've got to go do some spiritual exercise or beat yourself up for some sin you committed 20 years ago or you got to do penance and 20 Hail Marys and stop. It means you got to keep your eyes on Jesus and you've got to stay focused on him and you've got to go deeper with him each and every day and come to him when he brings the statement, do you want to be well? Yeah. I want to be well. <laughs> yeah, I want to be well. He's requiring our vulnerability, our honesty, our humility, and he's wanting us to bring everything, every sin, every illness, every issue, every addiction, every hurt, every pain, to the response of, do you want to be made well? Oh, yeah, but uh, no. Samaritan woman, uh, would you like a drink? The well's deep and you ain't got nothing to draw with, Jesus. Jesus says, well, I don't have to draw down into a well. I can just have the clouds above bring rain from the top down. <laughs> Do you want to be made well? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Make me well. And that's the kind of humility that he's calling us to to encounter him. Where we're not looking for a stirring of the waters. We're looking for a stirring in our heart. In our heart. Jesus, I just thank you for each and every person here. God, thank you for the deeper stirrings that you do. Thank you for the miracles that you do that point us to your goodness, point us to the Father's good works. But God, at the end of the day, is have we really just laid our lives out and said, God, it's yours? Have we let fear dominate us? Have we let excuses dominate us? Have we let pain from past experiences dictate how I treat other people? Am I projecting onto people my pain that I've refused to take responsibility of my healing for? Are you saying stand up and take care of Matt and walk? And are we still making excuses? So, Lord, I just ask for a fresh wave of humility that would say, I'm not trying to be something. I'm not trying to do something. I'm just answering your question. Jesus, make me well. Because <laughs> only you can do it. This water that I'm laying at, waiting on some angelic thing, that isn't going to do it. Only you can touch me deep enough to bring that kind of healing, God. So I open myself up and say, God, heal. 
what only you can heal. Do what only you can do. And I just answer the question with a simple yes and amen. Do you want to be made well? Yes and amen. Period. I don't add to it. Don't take away. Yes and amen. For that is the promises of God. So God, as we deal with long-term issues, some 38-year issues, some five years, some 10, God, they're not bigger than you. The devil's whispered in our ear and said, oh, this issue is way too big. It's way too complicated. We tell the enemy, you're a liar. (laughs) Nothing's bigger than God. So God, make us well. And don't just make us well. Bring us to deeper devotion to you. Fill our hearts with gratitude. right now I just feel like somebody needs to release somebody that's hurt you to God you just need to release it the Bible says vengeance is his and you got to give it to him release that person forgive them they don't deserve it of course they don't deserve it but that's grace rubbing us the wrong way Ah, they just need to have an encounter with Jesus like we did we give them to you if there's some here that just have this complicated process in their mind you're saying even just give me your mind and let me figure it all out for you take that pressure off yourself and quit trying to figure everything out I got you I'm your father and I won't let you miss out on something I'll get you right where you need to be I'll got every step God we give that to you and we thank you for never sleeping or never slumbering And when we sleep, you watch us, and you're just filled with delight watching your children sleep. (laughs) The way I look at my daughters when they sleep. Not doing nothing, just sleeping, resting. My heart's filled with delight that they can rest. God, teach us to rest. Teach us to rest. We rest in you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. Our hope is that these messages will help you on your journey of discovering who Christ is and who you are in Him. You can learn more about our ministry at lvahs.org or follow us on Instagram at lakeview.hs.